So obviously a very light passage to reflect on for Father's Day. And uh, just a warning, so I jokingly said last week that, you know, I got about four more times to, to, to teach and preach, and so it's going to be like this greatest hits uh, for, that I could give you over my 20-plus years of, of teaching. Um, and then I came to this passage, and I was like, well, we're going to have to talk about this then. And because I, f- I feel like it, it speaks to so much what's happening around us right now, and I'm grateful that Scripture does that, that uh, Scripture, as ancient and old as it is, it always has a word for us in the here and now for us to consider. Um, but the word this morning is very difficult, and so I just want to warn you, buckle up. It uh, may not be a feel-good message, but I think it's an appropriate and needed message because there are some things that I think that I need to be able to say that we all need to be able to consider, uh, especially as this church living in the times that we are in of so much unheaval culturally. Um, what does it mean for us to uh, not try to be relevant? Uh, that's such a relative word, but to be a part of the change and to, to be part of the inspiration for the change. And I think that's what Christ City has been able to do, especially these last few years, is find her in a place where she can, uh, culturally speaking, be inspiring for others to have to consider. But it also means that it's not a popular vote, a popular place, uh, and I'm okay with that, though. And I think you all are, too, because ultimately we're interested in things being better and different and more like what we read of Christ doing and bringing about in his life, uh, especially in John 10:11, when he said, uh, I came that you may have life in it more abundantly here and now in the present, perfect tense. So um, first, let me unpack a little bit as to what I see happening in this passage with Jeremiah. Um, The passage starts uh, in the middle, basically, of something that's already happening. Um, And we have to read a little bit before about, in the first few verses, what happened with Jeremiah. But instead, I'm just going to kind of summarize it summarize it for us here. Um, Jeremiah is, this is happening sometime around six, between 625 and 600 in that range, um, BCE. And Jeremiah was called at a young age. Uh, We read that uh, he was basically a kid, um, but a kid who the Lord called, and uh, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because the things that he has to talk about are incredibly sad, and, and, um, and it hurts a lot of people, the things that he expresses and says, things that people don't want to hear, things he doesn't really even want to say. We see that he's got a lot of inner turmoil. Uh, he's not excited about this role at all. Um, there's, you know, <laughs> I know I joke on this a lot. There's no Enneagram 8 for Jeremiah. This guy is like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't, I don't want to confront everything. But he's put in a unique position, really unlike other prophets, in that he's from the north, which would be Israel, but he's living in the south part, which is Judah. And um, he's speaking and prophesying. He's one of the few prophets that actually is the in-between. There's a few in-between prophets between Assyria taking over Israel and then Babylon taking over Judah. And he's one of those few in-between prophets and really kind of the most 
pronounced of all the prophets during this time. And so he's been, he's been um, giving all these hard words to Israel for them to consider. And then there was a young king, a teenager, a young boy actually, um, named Josiah, who came into power in Judah. And when he did, he listened to Jeremiah, and he recovered the law, and they put the law in place. And so Judah was spared from Assyria and, and being captured. But then, um, as what happens, there were people who got into power and that turned that power into a place to execute evil. And this is one of those in-between spots where Jeremiah is starting to speak to uh, some of the, the religious leaders of the time. And there's one here named Pashur. And Pashur was kind of this lead priest. And Jeremiah is speaking out against all that's happening. Uh, within Judah, the injustice, the evil he sees. And Pashur doesn't like it. And has Jeremiah put in prison? He stays in there over a night, and then he, Pashur, spends his time trying to convince the king at that time to, to basically uh, imprison, kill, exile uh, Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah is starting to speak out here. Um, and he, even on his way out of prison, <laughs> being let out, he, he, like, says these words. Uh, he goes, he goes uh, you know, here's what the Lord's saying. I will deliver all the wealthy in this city into the hands of their enemies and all its products and all its valuables and all the treasures of the kings of Judah. They will take it away as they plunder and carry it off to Babylon. Um, and then it says, and you, Pashur, and all who, uh, all who live in your house will go into exile to Babylon as well. So Jeremiah really got some last words in. Uh, and some shots there like, well, let me just be really clear as to what you're doing and why you're doing this to me is wrong and what God's going to do at the end of the day. And then we read, this is when he starts talking here, and it's interesting, he, he says that you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. Which, you know, I, at first I tried to like really break that down, that word down, because I'm like, oh, it's kind of strong. Like it's, I mean, its roots are, um, are really in, in more persuade. Uh, that you could read it like you've persuaded me, I feel persuaded, but really the state of mind that Jeremiah's in, it, the, the better words deceived, like Jeremiah's angry. He's angry at God. He's angry that he's put in this position to have to make these kind of decisions, like he's put in this position to make these kinds of decisions and say these things. And then you're like, well, why do you got to say these things though, Jeremiah? Like, can't you just kind of keep your mouth shut and not be against the things and like take a break? And, and then as we read on though, he's, he's saying that... Um, Verse 9, but if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And you're like, well, there's the deception for him. He, he's like, I accepted this thing that I was so passionate, like, okay, God, I'm going to be this voice and, and say these things, and you know how it could be, right? Like your own life, like maybe you get this thought, word, verse, bumper sticker, scripture from God, and you get this inspo, you want to run with it. But then as you do, you find that there's a lot of consequences if you're going to really do that. If you're really going to stand up for X thing or Y or whatever it may be, that it's not just going to be a, a neutral place you get to live in. You're actually against something that is evil and wrong, and therefore you want to do something about it. Um, and so therefore there are going to be consequences that come with that. But then you find that the consequences are so bad you don't like them that you want to quit it. But then if you quit it, you'd be denying like the essence of like who you are inside. But maybe you weren't like that person when you first started five or ten years ago. So you're like, I feel deceived. <laughs> and I, 
I see that's what's happening with Jeremiah. Like, there's something he's bought into, and he can't unbuy into it. And he's got to move forward with it. But the more he moves forward with it, although it's doing the right thing in the hard time, it's still it's costing him a lot. Which, that's what this story, this passage is about, right? Like, we hear these things like, how do you do the right thing at the right time? That's what we get so intent on. I want to do the right thing at the right time. Uh, you don't want to do the right thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the right time. You want to do the right thing at the right time. But I think the harder thing is, how do you do the right thing in the hard times? Like when it's stacked against you to not do it, to not say it, to not live it. And here's what we find with Jeremiah. It's stacked against him. Because now not only is he speaking against what's happening in another land of Israel where he's not living, even though he's a Benjamite, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, He's living in the south in Judah. And now it's hitting home because he's got to start calling out people in his backyard, people that he sees it. At, at, uh, at temple with, at synagogue, people that he goes and buys from uh, his groceries or whatnot in the market. He's becoming a marked person in his own community, and it's hitting close to home. And I think that's what this passage is, is telling us, that, that there are these times you have to make the right decision in the hard times, regardless of what it's going to cost. But we can't help but count the cost because the cost is a lot. Now, let me pair that with what we're experiencing as a people right now in this country, the wallpaper in the room. Um, You know, there's a lot of memes going around right now of what it's going to be like for kids in school 100 years from now when they're studying history. And all of a sudden, they get to, like, year 2020 and why it takes them, like, two months to go through that and not just a week. Because there's just been that much going on for us. Um, And it's a lot. And you think about now this moment, this cultural moment we find ourselves in, how profound it is. We haven't seen anything like this since Dr. King was assassinated uh, 50 years ago, 51 years ago. And the upheaval that was happening, the, the building and building and building of the civil rights era. But then when this innocent person, as, as far as no crime committed, there's nothing about his life that should have been taken, was taken, it woke a lot of people up. And uh, in over 120 cities, there were uh, riots and protests for 10 days. And here we are in week three of, of protests and riots and... Um, movement happening and then you're like well did some great uh uh, leader cultural leader uh was he was he assassinated uh no and yes Uh, there was no dr king his name was george floyd but wasn't just george floyd it was a, a host of other black americans who were murdered um by cops or people who had been in law enforcement and um and we're seeing, like, man, that's something is going on here. And, and just for what it's worth, I, I, I'm no culturalist and, and, and I'm no expert, um, but I, I do like to try to think about these things and, and process them. And so my two cents as to why are we in this moment, this cultural moment, that for hundreds of years down the road, people look back on 
and, and read and see that something profound and significant happened here. Like, what is it? Well, I think there's a few things that, that have kind of uh, dovetailed together here. I think, one, the world has been in global trauma for over three months, six months for other countries like China. There are people all over the world who are experiencing trauma. And, and the trauma is, is that whether you're rich or poor, up or down, in or out, uh, whatever color you may be, you identify eth ethnically as a person, um, everyone is subjected to this, to this disease. And when your personal safety is infringed upon, uh, it, that is traumatic. When you do not have control over something, that is traumatic. Now, what we know in dealing with the mind is that whenever hard times or traumatic moments come up, it will also bring to surface undealt with trauma from our past, which is why we feel like we're going back and interacting as we used to as a child or think as a teenager or whatever else. Because the limbic, the back of your brain where all the feelings is happening, it doesn't know. It just thinks that, okay, I'm back there again. So you have all these people that are dealing with current trauma, but also all their past trauma of what's undealt with is coming up. And so that's why you hear the line, if it's, if it's hysterical, it's historical. If I find that I'm dealing with something hysterically, um, then there's something historical behind this. And so that's the wallpaper in the room. That's what's happening as a people in the world. Along with that, you have over 30% unemployment rate. It's the, the highest it's been since, uh, since the Great Depression. And so you have, this, you have this unemployment rate, and it's mostly people of color. Um, and so you add that to the mix of what's going on. So people not having their, their livelihood, they've lost their jobs. So that combined with what's happening in the world around them, along with the murders, uh, and I mean, I think you could, it, it is what it is when it, when it's there on video, um, the, the, the cop lynchings of black Americans. And you're like, well, these things have always happened, but the truth of the matter is these things are being called on video. Why is it being called on video? Because people have more time on their hands, and everybody has a body cam on them because they have a phone. And you bring all these things together, and all of a sudden you have the makings of a cultural moment, a moment of undealt with trauma, a moment of this country more and more not able to ignore its beginnings and origin story of how it came to be and how it, how it made its decisions and how it was hypocritical in um, equality and life liberty for every person and human being here. Let's see, I told you it was heavy. And so I, as I think about that and all that's happening, although there's so much angst and fear, I, I also feel like this is a moment that's pregnant for change, like it's prime. We're in the midst of something where truly, when they read in the history books 100 years from now, they'll be able to read, hopefully, of great change. But it also means it takes great effort and great involvement on our ends, as people living in this moment, that we don't miss it, that we don't get away from it, that we let ourselves experience it, 
and then not only let it change us, but be a part of the change that it can be. And, and what is this thing that we're waiting for, this thing, this change we're looking for? Well, it's a mouthful, but here's what I'll say. The crying out for the systemic injustice upheld by white supremacy and racist ideals in this country to be uprooted. The crying out for the systemic injustice that's upheld by white supremacist ideas and ideals and ways of living to be uprooted. That's what people are crying out for. Now, for a lot of us, that can be a really uncomfortable statement. It's definitely a mouthful. And I just want to take a moment with this and, and talk about why this is so big and heavy um, and what it all is really saying. Frederick Douglass, who was a, a mid-19th century abolitionist and who escaped from slavery himself uh, in Maryland and became a friend of President Lincoln, um, um, he once said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and never will. Things that are wrong must be confronted if things that are wrong uh, ever change, can change. They must be confronted. They, they don't change. Power, people with power don't give up power without their power being pushed against and threatened. And what we tend to slap on are words like anarchy and whatever else, but the, the truth of the matter is what we're saying is that, no, we want to be like Jeremiah, and we got to say the things that have to be said. We want to not only say those things, but live into those things. And, yeah, we're going to have our beef with God because life gets harder for us, but it's in our bones, and we can't not say it now. We can't not do it now. And so what we're saying is, is that there is a systemic injustice that's been upheld by white supremacist ideals and ideas, that this country was founded upon um, white Western Europeaners who owned uh, African slaves and brought them to this country and suppressed them and used them to build up uh, our capital um, and all parts of America. And it isn't just limited, of course, to black Americans. We have Asian Americans and, and others out west that they were brought over as well. But it was different in that they weren't, they weren't enslaved to be brought over. We have, first and foremost, this underlying trauma to us as a country that's been undealt with for hundreds of years, and that is our country is built upon the backs of slaves. And until that is dealt with completely, that trauma will always resurface in hard times. That if we don't deal with that completely as a country, then 20 or 30 more years down the road, something else will happen and it'll get worse and worse because that's how it is with trauma. You know, Jesus talked, I, you know, Jesus didn't use the language of trauma and all those kind of things, but you almost can see it in his writings. Like he has his story about if you clean the house out, but then there's like seven more demons that come back, it gets worse and worse. And the idea is if you don't deal with it the right way the first time, it gets worse and worse as you keep going. And as we're seeing, things are getting worse and worse. So until these things are dealt with, it gets worse and worse. So we have to deal with these things. And it's hard to deal with these things. Because we're like, well, why didn't my mom or dad or my grandparents, whoever else, deal with things? Well, they just didn't. So the reality is it's left here in this moment. So what will we do and how will we deal with it? And, and the things that, you know, I'll, I'll say this quickly about 
confronting. The word confront is the Latin word, uh, two words, to come with face. Now, a lot of us are, are a bit traumatized even thinking about confronting because, you know, I don't want to confront people and whatever else. Or, but it means to come with face. It means to bring the truth of who you are to a moment and to not lie about who you are and where you are. And in confronting, you're not bringing shame for someone else to have to wear. You're just saying, I'm no longer going to live in my shame. And if that sparks any shame for you, I'm sorry. But this is the truth of what must be said and be done here because I'm no longer willing to wear the shame. That's what happens when we confront. Now, the more intimate the relationship, the more conversation we can have, obviously. But the truth of the matter is... um, that those who've lived with this shame for so long, people of color, black Americans, they're having to speak out and go, this is no longer my shame. This isn't my thing. This is your thing. This is your thing that you've upheld and not been willing to deal with. And no, it's not enough that we can just kind of um, be friends and have reconciliation and all be good together. No, there's, there's more that must happen here. And until those things we recognize and that trauma dealt with, this is what will keep happening over and over again. Um, And so we must be willing to confront. And as us as a church, just a few things I want us to consider that we have to, I think, realize is, first, we are very much a white church. And that's okay. That is totally okay. Like, a person's privilege of being white isn't something for them to be guilty over unless they're intentionally using their white privilege to press down another person. Now, after you have your white privilege recognized and call out, if you don't do something about it, then there's going to be guilt with it. But I would say to us as a church, we're predominantly a white church, which means there's a lot of things that we have to consider of how we got in our lives that really had nothing to do with the work in our lives. And I know that's not something we want to hear. Now, at the same time, if there was ever a church in the city that's mostly white that's, that could take this word, it's us. So I know I'm preaching to the choir to some degree. Like, I, I know, we're Christ City. We deal with these things, and, and I'm proud of that. Um, but I also just want to recognize in this moment, though, that's still the position of where we are. Um, and there's a certain posture then I want to say that we have to take. Um, we have not shielded away from this the past few years, talking about uh, seeking for racial justice and I mean, when Black Lives Matter was beginning just a few years ago, a lot of us were in those rallies and going and connecting and having conversations and, and bringing it back here. So in many ways, I'm, I'm very, very proud of us of where we are, of what we can do and what places we can go in conversation, but not just that, in action. And, um, but with that, it's important to recognize, uh, you know, I'm, I'm stepping down. If you haven't heard that until now, you're just viewing, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go back and <laughs> listen to last week's message. Um, so uh, I'm stepping down, and a, a, a black man, Jamin Carter, is stepping in to be the pastor, directional pastor here, to bring direction to this church, in a church that's predominantly white. And I just need to be able to say that out loud. I need us to be able to recognize that out loud. Um, and that's nothing to get anxious over, but it's something to recognize uh, and I know there's such a humble spirit by so many people in this church to say, I just want to learn. I want to learn. What a cultural moment. I want to learn. And at the same time, here's what I want to say. You're here to learn and learn. At the, at the same time, it's not Jamin or any other person of color's uh, job in our church to have to be the one to speak out against what's happening in our country. 
that's been a burden on, on black Americans for too long. It is the job of people who identify as Caucasian white who have that privilege now to speak up and say things. And that's hard because we don't want to, we don't, we, yeah, we just, we've been taught not to. We've, we've, given, we've been given lots of reasons not to, but it's not a, a person who is of color's job to have to be the one speaking out about this. It's every person here in this church's job to be speaking out against these things and having their voice heard. And what I'm saying is we must be a church who is actively confronting the powers upholding these racist systems. That is what we must be about. That it's not just the person who's preaching or the elders. It is every person sitting in these virtual pews <laughs> in their homes, at their jobs, confronting these things to bring their true face to this matter like Jeremiah, it's in their bones. They can't deny it. This must happen. And yeah, I feel tricked because honestly, if it was my call, I would not be putting myself in these uncomfortable situations. But now that I've seen what I've seen, I've got to do these things. It's all of our jobs to be a part of this movement and this change in this cultural moment. And what that presses against is, you know, three categories. First is, I don't, I don't think anybody here would ever say this. <laughs> I don't think any person I would know would say these things. Uh, but, you know, there's, this, there's the racist category where someone is blatantly racist. And if you look long enough on social media, you find it. And obviously, um, with those who are proud of their white supremacist ideals and what's been handed to them and those who want to defend, the argument is, is that they're defending their heritage. The truth of the matter is it's, it's racism. But then a lot of people who are Caucasian and white fall in the second category, simply being non-racist. I'm not racist. Like that's what we say. I'm not racist. I have black friends. I'm not racist. You know, I support black businesses. I'm not racist. I read books about, about racism. And I'm not racist. I, I seek for reconciliation. And here's what I'd say. That's still not enough. We can't simply just be not racist. There's really only a third category we're left with, and that is to be anti-racist, against racism, where our voices are heard, where we put our feet to the pavement and say we stand in solidarity, not only to learn and listen from our friends who have been under immense trauma and pressure since the beginning of their lives because of what they look like, color of their skin, but we also are there to speak out as well and to say this is not okay and we will be a part of the solution to be against racism. And listen, all of us, all of us deal with racist parts in our lives. I want to be really, I want to be really vulnerable and say this, even for myself, um, in my own therapy and work, I've learned how racist I was against myself growing up. That there's racism in me, towards me. You talk about like a mind trip <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, i got to deal with that then. Like, every one of us, to some degree, have racist ideals, white supremacist ideals that uphold the systemic injustice that we have to be honest with ourselves about and face and then address and then dismantle, uproot, and then bring to the light and use it as a witness and a testimony of what does it mean for others to be able to do the same so we can move forward 
in not just this cultural moment, but what I would even say is a Jesus movement and a Jesus moment. Because I do believe if Jesus was literally here in the flesh, he'd be right out there marching. He'd be right out there saying these things. Um, a poor man from the backwoods of, of Palestine, Israel, who was looked down upon and under the thumb of, of a, uh, a racist empire of Rome. And he's speaking out. He'd be right out there, I believe. And I think that these are things we have to consider. Um, and so with that, I would say these days of neutral are over. <laughs> and there was another passage I was wondering if it would even fit in at some point in time from the lectionary today. But I just want to give you this other passage from the lectionary reading today. Um, and this is in, in Matthew chapter 10. And I'll, I'll bring it to a close here. I know I'm going a little long, but you know what? I don't care. It's my last few times to teach. I'll go as long as I want. You can obviously press stop when you're in if you want, but I wouldn't yet. So at the end of, uh, of Matthew 10, Jesus is giving some hard words, as he does. And I'll start here in, uh, in verse 26. He goes, Do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I love that. Proclaim what is whispered to you on the rooftops. Do not conceal the things you know to be true. Jeremiah's word here. Speak out the things you know you got to speak out. Because who's got your back? God's got your back. He knows all your hairs. You're worth more than sparrows. However much sparrows are worth those days. They're not worth a lot today, but obviously they're worth a lot more than at that time. And you're worth more than sparrows. And so if a sparrow has that much worth, much more worth do you have? So he's got your back. It means you got to speak out. And then as you move on, though, he goes, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown them before my Father in heaven. And then verse 34 is kind of bothering, but I think it also can help. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. But whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Listen, I don't think he's saying on this Father's Day, he doesn't want his fathers and sons to get along, not get along. That's not what he's saying. I think what Jesus is pointing out is there are these places culturally we come from that can blind us to the moments we're in of the change that needs to happen. And no matter who would get in our way, if it's not the Jesus cause, then we must confront those people and those places and those things as hard as it is. Which means there may be family members that must be confronted, or brothers or sisters, or even if your children are old enough, some of their views they've picked up. And confronting and dismantling doesn't mean you have to shame them down. It means you bring your shame to the light of what you've learned, but also what you're no longer willing to live with and what you're seeing there to bring your face, to bring truth, and that when we do this well and do this regularly, 
in the life that we are loved, that every hair on our head is accounted for, we don't have to do it in rage to bring another person down, but we do say the systems and views and ideals must be brought down. And if that brings family members at odds, then so be it. So like I said, it's not maybe the Father's Day message that we're all thinking we're going to get fluffy this morning, but this is a message I think we need to hear and be honest with. And here's what I know. I know that every elder that sits at that table is committed to this. I know those who are leading this church are committed to this. And I know more than likely if you stuck with us this long as a church, you're committed to this. So maybe that makes us feel less lonely. And maybe we can encourage each other more in this. And maybe there's more work and reading we can do around these things so that we can be learners more. And then step out and stand side by side with our brothers and sisters who are the ones having to voice their trauma. And we can say that trauma is real and must be heard and can't be pushed down again. I love you all. I hope you have a great rest of the day. There is an adult track if you want to uh, uh, check out some questions that we have for you as an adult. And there's a kids track that Katie put together. So, um, yeah, have a great rest of the day. Happy Father's Day.